This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Utica College historian Dr. Sherry Cash. Glad you could join us, Sherry. Thank you. It's a real honor to have been asked. Well, you've been asked, and we will talk. Uh, Sherry Cash uh, did a talk last month at Old Fort Johnson in Fort Johnson, New York, on the upstate New York ginseng plant and its importance in colonial days. The ginseng root was a hot commodity in the British Empire uh, during the 18th century. There was a colonial global trading network developed in the Mohawk Valley around the native ginseng plant. And ginseng was still a factor in Mohawk Valley agriculture in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, centuries, I should say. Now, Sherry, the Chinese use ginseng root for health purposes. What is it used for? Well, uh, there's over, uh, you know, many different people have um, said that it's wonderful for a wide variety of ailments. Um, I, I think the sort of the root of that is the idea of energy. There's a strong idea that ginseng provides greater energy to the body and that it can restore the body. Uh, Some of the things that are some of the ailments that it's been said to be able to cure or mitigate are infertility in men and women. Um, just a, you know, again, general feeling of uh, invigoration, mm-hmm. and um, there have been some other claims. Uh, sure. Benjamin Franklin once prescribed it for kidney stones. Um, a, a wide variety of claims, and it seems that in our present day, that kind of um, you know those kinds of claims continue. Mm-hmm. There, there are some that say. It has nothing to offer. There are others, you know, current researchers who say that, in fact, it's a strong antioxidant. We're hearing a lot about that these days, the importance of antioxidants in our uh, diets. Uh, There's apparently there's some research saying that it helps to control blood glucose levels, uh, which is pretty important. And um so, but again, there are, you know, there are other studies who, that deny that, mm-hmm. um, but certainly it's very popular, and I, I guess what's most important is that a lot of people in a lot of places of the world uh, really, you know, be- believe in its, in its ability in its work, to, yeah. to cure them or, you know, to make them feel better. Is, is it a natural kind of Viagra, something that helps with male erectile dysfunction? Well, uh, <laughs> I guess you could you could probably say that there was sort of such a claim uh, in the sense that it was thought to to uh, help with infertility, mm-hmm. both for men and women. Um, so, in that sense, yeah, <laughs> maybe you know, yeah. for the 18th century and earlier. Yeah. Did it ever, or has it ever caught on in America? Or, I mean, it, it must have to some extent, I guess. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so ginseng is one of the most uh, popular herbs in uh, in America now. You know, it, 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 it's added to a wide variety 
of you know sort of health foods and teas. So it's it's very much around. Yeah. Okay. Do you, have you ever taken it? You know, I have on a few occasions had some tea, green tea, that had ginseng as an additive. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I didn't, you know, seek that out on purpose. It just happened to be where I was. That's the tea had sure. that in it, and um, I had already done this research when that happened, and so I was. You know, I, I kind of got a kick out sure. of that. Well, well, let's get to your research. How did the ginseng market work in uh, colonial days? Well, um, at least from what I've seen in terms of uh, the Mohawk Valley and even actually wider in terms of New England at that time and in Canada, uh, which was still um, New France at that time, uh, really, the supply chain started with Native Americans, and um, uh, the reason behind that is that uh, Indians also used that plant. You know, just as mm-hmm. it was popular in China, it was also known in North America and was one of, of course, very many um, you know, natural remedies that that uh, many different. Native American nations uh, knew of and, and, and used. Uh, and I should say, too, that in China at that time, ginseng was thought to be kind of a super cure for Native Americans. It was really just one of a variety mm. of medicines that was used. It was somewhat more ordinary to them. Uh, nevertheless, certainly you know, widely known. Mm-hmm. And so, really, Native Americans are at the beginning of all of this uh, in terms of North America and uh, the uh, trade between the British Empire and also other empires, uh, other European empires, but uh, in terms of the British, between the British Empire and, uh, and China. So, Native Americans were finding it and supplying it, but at the same time, settlers, from what I have seen, it appears that settlers were also learning to find ginseng, Mm -hmm. uh, originally taught by Native Americans. So from that point of collection, then, uh, it would go forward, you know, merchants would uh, seek out the route and they 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 usually called it roots or, you know, th- instead of saying the ginseng root or even ginseng, ginseng was, the term was used, but uh, very often just roots. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, from there, then the more local merchants were sending it through a network of, uh, you know, a, a mercantile network into uh, London and then, uh, you know, from there traveling with the British East India Company all the way to China. Huh. And in return, didn't you say that the the British Empire, or this end of the British Empire, uh, traded ginseng for tea? Yes. Um, that's right. And the reason is that tea was actually quite expensive. And at that time, a tea was the tea that was coming to the British colonies 
uh, came almost exclusively from China. And so ginseng, because it, you know, it carried a high price, was um, it, it made the perfect trade good mm-hmm. with tea. It was the perfect commodity to trade for. Uh, cash was always, uh, you know, uh, rare. Um, you know, merchants were always short on cash, and everybody was. I mean, this certainly wasn't mm-hmm. the same kind of monetary system that we have now where cash is very widely uh, available. And so, you know, if you could find ginseng, if you could acquire ginseng, then you could readily ch- uh, trade that for other goods as well, but mainly in terms of the British East India Company, what they are doing, you know, right at at that point where they're trading in Canton, China, what the city that was called Canton at the time, is trading ginseng for tea because it, ha- it carried such a high price. And so it just it made mm-hmm. the perfect um, medium of exchange. Do, do you know how they shipped it? I mean, it, with ginseng, what you want to get is the root of the plant, right? Did they just Correct. ship the root or did they grind them up and ship that or what? Do you know what they did? Yeah, that's a good question uh, because particularly in that time period, of course, you know, there's, there's no refrigeration, right, mm-hmm. um, or modern methods of, of packing perishable goods. And so that was always a problem for merchants at that time, you know, in, in terms of ginseng, but anything else that was, uh, that was perishable. And so ginseng was certainly no exception to that, and so it had to be handled very carefully. The process actually began as really as soon as the roots were, were picked. Um, they had to be washed and then cured in a very particular way. That is to say that they had to be thoroughly dried mm. and slowly dried. And, you know, that could take a few months, actually. Mm-hmm. They had to be kind of laid out on the floor and turned once or twice a day. And so it was a real process to get them to dry slowly and correctly. No. From there, they would be packed in barrels in a particular manner, you know, carefully, and then sealed tightly, and then put on a ship and you know, the merchant hoped for the best. Yeah, there's there's actually, um, uh, William Johnson wrote a letter to a merchant at one point saying, you know, basically as soon as you get the shipment, open the casks and air them out, mm-hmm. you know, because he knew that they've got to be kept dry. Mm-hmm. And then from there, um, just to kind of take that process even further than what, what happens at that point. What, what is it that the consumer of ginseng really wanted? The root then had to be sliced uh, very thinly, and it was used to make a tea. Mm-hmm. The tea itself also went through a process of um, kind of a, a, a distillation process. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, you know, to make it more potent. And so this whole, it was a very involved uh, and careful process. We're talking with Dr. Sherry Cash, a history professor at Utica College, about the colonial ginseng trade. Now, were the Native Americans and then the settlers, like Sir William Johnson, 
were they finding the ginseng in the wild, or, or, or ultimately did they produce it as a farm crop? Uh, at that time, it was all um, found in forests. You know, ginseng is an indigenous plant, uh, originally, anyway, in, the, in this region. And um, so people were fanning out into the forest to find ginseng. And um, that was really a skill unto itself because the best ginseng was came the best roots came from a, a mature plant and that was something like four to seven years old hmm. so the plant really was supposed to be mature so there had to be a you know the, the the person who's finding it has to be able to recognize that this is not only ginseng but this is a mature plant mm-hmm. and so yeah it's just they're they're finding it in the woods now okay. very similar to the fur trade, what's happening is that more and more of the plant, just as what happened with, with beavers and, you know, other, um, other fur-bearing animals that were taken, is that they're being over-harvested. And so, uh, you know, eventually you, you've got to move farther and farther out in order to find the plants. And that's in addition to the fact that it's in that same moment forests are being cleared, right, as settlers are um, are acquiring territory from Native Americans or they're renting it from them and uh, are clearing forests for farms. And mm-hmm. so that destroys the natural habitat as well. So there are these parallels with the fur trade in the sense that it's moving farther and farther west. Huh, really? We're talking with uh, Dr. Sherry Cash, a professor at Utica College, who did a talk on ginseng in uh, colonial New York and uh, colonial America back in the 18th century. Uh, More with her in just a moment. Here at the Historians Podcast, we depend on your contributions to keep us going. We have our uh, fund drive underway for the year. We have a GoFundMe page, easy to donate online, GoFundMe.com, uh, 2019 The Historians will take you uh, to the appropriate page. If you'd uh, like to donate by mail, uh, make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Dr. Sherry Cash, a historian at Utica College, uh, with us. We're talking about ginseng in the 18th century. Uh, let me ask you uh, about Schenectady merchant John Sanders. Who was he, and what was his role in the ginseng trade? Okay, well, um, Sanders uh, hailed from a Dutch background. His family had settled in Albany, uh, developed a fur trading business. And Sanders was sent as a young man out to Schenectady to kind of establish, you know, a more westward, westward arm of the family business. Mm-hmm. And so he became a merchant in his own right and um, trading in all kinds of goods. And uh, the he comes into this story of ginseng in 1752 when prices were very high 
And as historians have noted, there was kind of a ginseng boom, if you will, at that time. And Mm. so this is where he, you know, this is when he entered the market. So he's not the only one who is dealing in ginseng because, you know, others, uh, you know, his peers would have been, say, Yelifonda. Um, I already mentioned William Johnson. So, uh, you know, he's certainly not the only one who's mm-hmm. doing it. But uh, for this research, I closely studied an account book that he kept of his transactions in Jensen. And in fact, there are a lot of names uh, in his records, Sanders' records about the ginseng trade uh, that, you know, were just kind of casually familiar to me that you, um, I believe, will talk about or write about, uh, like, Roman and Fonda itself and Nellis and Clock. Uh, These are names that are well known up here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, (laughs) studying Sanders' accounts was like meeting, you know, that whole cast of characters. I mean, it was so much fun to see all of those names pop up. Uh, You know, you said, uh, you know, you named a a few of of the names that show up there. Uh, I would also add the Fry family. Um, Elias Post is a merchant of that time that, that he was also working with, the Wemples. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Nellis, the Van Alsteins mm-hmm. show up, um, the Kessler, Scrambling, and many others. Uh, so it, that was that was kind of a fun uh, part of the of the work. And then in addition to that, uh, all of these folks, another group uh, showed up that was of particular interest to me, and that is to say, the enslaved African American people associated with those families. So folks who don't normally get into the record were also showing up as part of this ginseng trade. So, you know, for for example, one of them uh, is recorded by Sanders as Deborah Wemple's Negro Klaus. Hmm. Or it- another one was Snell's Wench. Oh, uh, Scrambling's Negro and Mr. Fry's Negro. Now, and, and so the African-Americans would presumably keep keep the money or keep the goods that they got for the ginseng? Uh, this is a great question. From what I've seen, there are a number of transactions in which African-Americans are trading on their own behalf. And per- perhaps not you know, in terms of all of the uh, transactions that show up in, in Sanders's account. But there are a number of them in which a settler is shown making a trade with Sanders, and then the slave is making a separate transaction. Mm-hmm. And that happens a few times in the account book. And, and so that led me to the conclusion that they were also trading for themselves. Mm-hmm. But what I also <laughs> found with that is that they received a lower price than the white settlers did, mm-hmm. a significantly lower price. Maybe and their so, owners took a cut of it or something, do you suppose? I don't know. Uh, well... That, that's a good thought. Uh, what I'm seeing is that Sanders actually paid them less. Now, is it possible that 
what doesn't show up in the account book is that Sanders is, you know, say, you know, paying half of the going rate to, say, Snell's wench, right? She maybe gets half of what it's really worth, and then the other half went to Snell, the master. Uh, that That is possible, uh, and, and actually that's a really good thought. Uh, another one might be that, you know, maybe slaves are being sent to find the ginseng mm-hmm. for their owners, and the incentive to actually come back with it mm-hmm. is the idea that, you know, go out, find it, bring it back, and then you will get the slave, will get, uh, will get a cut of it. I do want to—I'm sorry, I do, I do want to move on just a, little, yeah. uh, a bit because we're running out of time, or will be, uh, and I wanted to talk about um, ginseng in a more uh, modern way. Uh, Framework. I mean, not like yesterday, but uh, the late 1800s and the early 1900s. I'd uh, written a story about this uh, for uh, my Daily Gazette column. was also one of my books, Hidden History, about a man named Archie Kested. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. K-E-S-T-E-D. And let me just talk for a second about him. Archie Kested sure. was a very interesting guy. In addition to raising ginseng, he made violins. He was a woodworker, involved in politics, involved in a big court case. But he was known as the ginseng king. And yeah. uh, as near as I can tell, he grew it, I mean, as a crop. And there were pictures online that Cornell University took uh, in the early years of the 1900s, showing Kested's ginseng farm on the Johnstown Road north of uh, Fonda, and he was sure. shipping it in barrels to China and so on and so forth. Is he unusual, or have you heard of other more uh, recent uh, ginseng growers in uh, upstate New York? Uh, no, I would not say that he was unusual in what he was doing uh, in the sense he may have been with that name, the Ginseng King. Maybe he was more successful and he was running a larger business than others. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but by then, you know, Ginseng is largely gone from this area, you know, just growing wildly. And uh, by then, there, there were people around the state who were cultivating it. And, you know, of course, that it goes on to this very moment. Oh, that's what I was curious about. So people are still doing that today. Or that's If you were to uh, raise ginseng around here to sell to whoever, uh, you would you would plant it. Yes. Um, now, I have heard anecdotally that you can still find it out there somewhere. Um, but o- overwhelmingly, in fact, uh, you know, it's, it's purposefully cultivated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's the conditions in, in New York are just right. Um, but back in the 18th century, it really was over harvested and the, the, much of the habitat was destroyed. And so now it will still grow. But overwhelmingly, you know, it has to be purposefully done. Now, in, in connection with how, how much it's worth, uh, in 1915, Archie Kested reported his ginseng beds were raided twice within a month, and about $500 worth of roots were stolen on uh, each occasion. And that same news story about the theft uh, said that he sold ginseng in New York City for 3 to $8 a pound. Of course, this is, again, dollars back in 1915. Sure. 
Yeah, so it was still clearly uh, a lucrative uh, business to be in, uh, you know, just as it was earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from the from the period I studied, I can say the the, the value of ginseng declined, but it was still very much worth doing. So, you know, it sort of hit a peak, and uh, then, again, it declined, but was, you know, still, the the value was enough that a merchant could could do very well, and particularly by collecting a lot of it, you know, there's sort of an economy of scale that that developed. But certainly that's there now, and, and, you know, in the period that I was studying it, studying uh, in 1752, for example, Daniel Klaus, uh, who was an Indian interpreter at that time, and he winds up as the son-in-law of, of Sir William Johnson. Uh, in 1752, Klaus reported that a pound of ginseng was worth a pound of beaver pelts. Now, mm-hmm. that's not too exact, except to say it was worth quite a lot. Right. Uh, doctor- uh, and so clearly, even now, it's, it's still... You know, it's still worth getting into. Dr. Sherry Cash, uh, Utica College history professor, did a talk on colonial uh, upstate New York and elsewhere and the ginseng plant uh, and uh, at Old Fort Johnson. I'm just curious, have you done anything else with this research, an article or a book or something of that nature? I have not. Um, You know, it was an enormously interesting project to me. For me, I'm still interested in it, um, you know, being asked also to, to give the talk at, at Fort Johnson. I was, I was thrilled to get that invitation because there's so much more that could be said about it. Uh, so I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. Okay. Um, and what are your other areas of interest in New York and uh, early America? Well, mainly uh, I'm a social historian. I, I study the, and I'm most interested in the history of ordinary people. So particularly in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of class, sexuality, uh, that's my main area of focus. And I love the, the history, the early history especially, of what's now upstate New York, you know, and, and what was at that time really a borderland. So that's, you know, that's my passion. Um, but I love New York State uh, history. It's endlessly fascinating to me. I, I teach New York State history, and, um, you know, I just enjoy that so much. And then within that, again, I, I especially like studying and teaching about ordinary people. And, um, you know, the his, history of women is, uh, is, a, is a special area of focus for me as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, I kind of move around okay. <laughs> in that whole territory. Are you from here? You're from upstate New York? I am not originally from the area. I grew up in Queens, actually. Huh. And then I went to graduate school at, in the, at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. And perhaps oddly, that's where I developed a profound interest in the history of upstate New York because I was studying so much about the American West and, you know, the frontier, mm-hmm. as you might say. I started to 
think about all of that process in terms of upstate New York or what would have been Western New York or the New York frontier back in the 18th century. Um, and so the work that I did there really informed how I think about New York in that period. And so, and now I'm an upstater because I've been living in Utica ever since I've been teaching at Utica college. So that started in 2002. Jerry Goldstein uh, Cash, Associate Professor of History at uh, Utica College. I thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, Sherry, it was a pleasure talking with you. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much, Bob. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.